It's my great joy to welcome you this morning to City Reach LA. Um, I'm Josh Houston. I'm the lead pastor here. Who was here last week for Resurrection Sunday? Wasn't it a good Sunday? So good. Uh, we had a bunch of new faces in the house. Uh, There's coffee, coffee, coffee. We had the taco truck. We shared a meal together after the gathering. Weren't those tacos awesome too? Man. And the quesadillas. I, gosh, I wish we could afford to just do that every Sunday. And we were like taco truck church, you know, like, man, please one day, Jesus, please one day. I love our church family. Um, It's just such an honor to spend Sunday gatherings with you, Sunday mornings with you. We all know how crazy and demanding and time-consuming and just plain hard it is to live in L.A. Um, Yet every week, a bunch of us wake up together, not together, we wake up and we join together. Some of us wake up together. Hopefully a lot of you aren't waking up together. <laughs> Our church is now a commune. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> yeah, we wake up and then we gather on Sundays and we celebrate God together and we, we revel in this, this gift of each other. And I love that. It's, 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 it's truly my great joy to be with you today. We're in this uh, sermon series, Jesus Invented Coffee for the month of April. Um, And here's how I'm framing it. When you create something, you always reveal something of yourself in your creation. A part of you will always show up, at least subtly, in your work, whether you're involved in the arts or gardening or engineering or education or you're a stay-at-home mom that creates a home out of a cold apartment, which some of you guys are just pros at. Creators, they, they pour something of themselves into their work, and if you know what you're looking for, you're all, you'll always be able to find them in their work. And this is true because God is the creator, and he put himself into us, and this is why we create. Even people that don't feel like they're creative, we all create in some form. And God is the creator, and he puts something of himself in all things, all created things. It's not merely man and woman that reveal God, that reflect God. We find him in all of creation, a lunar eclipse, glaciers, tiger lilies, bullfrogs, elbows, coffee. He's in all of it. He's in all of it. All these individual elements, they reflect something of the whole from which they originated. And this is why I want to talk about coffee for a month. Not just because I'm passionate about coffee, which I am, and you're you're going to continue to see more about why, but because of this marvel that Jesus invented, because it reflects something majestic about the divine. Last week, I spoke about brokenness, that we are invited down the path, this downward path of brokenness, like coffee, like Jesus, that eventually we can allow our wounds and our brokenness to become places of healing and redemption for others. Give it a listen on our podcast or on our Facebook Live if you missed it. By the way, that's just a short like shout out for that. If you ever miss stuff, some people don't even realize that you, you can go back. We have a podcast on our website. You can go onto the Facebook webpage. We have all of our sermons on there too if you just miss anything and you want to catch up. Today, I want to share a message entitled The Table. And here's my plan. I want to talk about coffee, and then I want to talk about my daughter, Aria, and then I want to talk about one of Jesus' favorite relational values. To start, coffee. I love watching progress in the coffee industry, from coffee shops to the roasters to products that I find and I follow on Kickstarter. Like People are just coming up with very innovative new things. What's been happening in the coffee industry the last 10 to 15 years is historic. 
a little coffee history for you. We're currently in, we're currently enjoying the benefits of what's known as the, the, the third wave of coffee. Anybody familiar with that term? Couple people. All right. First wave. Let me let me just jump in. Let's, let me show you what this is about. First wave. This is when the coffee market began. Companies like Folgers became big household names. Instant coffee took off. It was all about convenience. It was about mass production. But eventually, people wanted better coffee, not just convenient coffee. Enter second wave. Things like espresso and lattes and French presses. Make it taste better. But not only that, we want an experience because we're postmoderns, right? We want an experience of coffee. So coffee shops became trendy. This is when Starbucks really took off. All our Starbucks peeps, yeah? But the criticism to the second wave is that we forsook the source of the bean for the social experience of the bean. Enter third wave. It's, it's a reaction against bad coffee and trendy coffee shops. And now we're interested in the character of the bean, not just using it as a commodity. It's fascinating. I love reading up on this. Let's bloom what is inherent in the, un- in the uniqueness of this bean depending on where it was farmed in the world. Easy way to think of it is first wave was about the consumer. The second wave was about the experience. The third wave, the bean takes the center stage. It's really cool. It's, it, this is an artisan movement, and it's, it's pushing forward to, to the highest form of culinary appreciation. Seriously. There's like culinary artists that are jumping into the coffee industry to pull out of the bean what's, what's revealing something of God in that thing, whether they call it that or not. And now we're here. It's so fun to explore coffee shops. On Saturdays, our family, we regularly, we love to just, it's like a hobby of ours. We go, we'll look up new places on Yelp somewhere in L.A. Last, last, actually, this, um, yesterday, we went to this new place called Green Door in Beverly Hills. Check it out. Really cool place. Um, but I, it's like a hobby now for us. For me, I love it to, to, to go find a shop's take on a pour-over or on a cold drip or on a coffee shrub. So cool. However, even though that the coffee industry is, is relentlessly pushing forward, it's progressing, even though it's bringing people together like it never has before, you can still sit in a packed-out coffee house you could sit there for hours enjoying your nitro brew or your flat white or your single origin spro, whatever it is that you like, completely alone. You could sit in a packed out coffee house, a bunch of individuals alone together. Or to nod at one of my favorite Christian brands growing up, altogether separate, right? You could be in a, in a, in a packed out coffee house, altogether separate. Enter Aria. Aria, my three-year-old. She's an astonishing kid. She's clever. She's funny. She's kind. She is willful. <sighs> Finding that out this week. The little three-nager. Anybody know what I mean by that, right? I think one of her greatest uh, strengths, one of her greatest qualities, is her capacity to see strangers. Just this week, we were at a coffee shop. I think it was Tuesday. We were like, <laughs> it was a hard Sunday. It was a hard Monday. We're like, we're just, let's just go on, a, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday. We went to, we're like, let's go check out um, another coffee shop. The Boy and the Bear just opened at Culver City. Go check it out. Anyway, so we went to the Boy and the Bear. We're sitting there as a family, right? We're at this like little spot. And there's a woman kind of sitting like right here. And she looked busy. And, and Aria's drinking her little chocolate milk thing. And then she walks right up to the woman. She's like, hi, my name's Aria. <laughs> 
And the lady's like, hi, I'm Trisha. Nice to meet you. <laughs> you know, most of these people I would never have talked to. It happens all the time. Most of these people I would not have talked to. I make judgments. I'm like, they look really busy. They're doing some work on their phone or that person looks really grumpy. I don't want to disturb their grump mood right now, right? It's sad, really, is what it is. We're eventually trained into these social norms, right? We're trained into these things. But thankfully, Aria doesn't know them yet. She doesn't know anything about these social norms. She doesn't care. You're grumpy. It's probably because you haven't said hi to me today. Hi, my name's Aria, right? She just, like, jumps right in it. I love that when she sees a person, she sees them. She doesn't, she doesn't look beyond them. She doesn't look through them. She doesn't try to figure out how to use this person for her gain. Guys, she sees people. And because she sees them, she engages them, and something in them opens up. Funny thing is, the stranger and myself often end up having this, like, meaningful conversation because of Arya's courage. She just opens something up in the environment. Most of the time, she ends up changing the environment. People, they come alive because of her courage. And Aria reminds me a lot of how Jesus treated people. Today, I want to highlight a specific story in Luke where, like Aria, Jesus affects an environment by seeing a person. Now, before we get into the story, I want to give a little context because the story is about a tax collector. Now, many Christians, if you've been in the church for any, for any amount of time, you know that tax collectors get a bad rap, right? Everybody's heard that before. You even see it in, in Scripture like, oh, you're hanging out with the tax collectors. But... I don't think necessarily a lot of people know why they get a bad rap. So I want to give a little bit of insight into tax collectors in the ancient world. In New Testament times, Jews were under the authority of Rome, and Rome would tax the crap out of the Jews. They would tax them for everything, roads, security, sales, crops, emergency, export, you name it. And the way Rome would get their money is they would hire tax collectors to run around towns and get the money for them which means the tax collectors were hated because they're collecting money for the oppressors. Does that make sense? They're like running around taking money from the people being oppressed for the oppressors. So to help paint this picture, a tax collector back then, today, would be kind of like mm, a tax collector. Okay? <laughs> Imagine a dude showing up at your house today, later this afternoon, and he's like, hey, I'm here from the government. You owe me five grand. Be like, get out of here. I'm watching Lost right now, right? my favorite show. Take it a step further. These guys were despised not just because they were taking money for Rome. They were fellow Jews. Jews hired by the Romans to take money from the Jews. So imagine somebody in this room shows up at your house later this afternoon. Hi, I'm here from the government. <laughs> you owe me five grand. Get out of here. I'm watching Interstellar. It's <laughs> my favorite movie. <laughs> <laughs> Not only that, the tax collectors made their living by overtaxing what was actually owed. They were known to be flagrant extortionists. Whatever they could add onto the tax, they got to keep for themselves. They were greedy human beings. And they were given power. And they were hated because of it. And Luke 5 tells a story of one of these tax collectors. If you have your Bible or your Bible app on your smartphone, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 5. We got Bibles on the tables scattered throughout the room. I'll have the text up on the screen as well. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of those little guys home with you. Or little girls. I don't know why things get, I know Spanish has masculine, feminine things. It's, it's weird to do that in English, right? I guess if I would have said, like, take one of those little girls home with you, that just sounds weird, right? But 
take one of those little guys home with you. Like, that sounds okay, right? That's, I've never thought about that before. I'm a verbal processor, as you can tell. Take a moment to enjoy my good coffee. <laughs> yes. Man, it's a good Sunday morning. All right. <laughs> I love being with you guys on Sundays. I just love it. I just love it. All right. This is Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 27. After this, Jesus went out, and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What I want to say with today is why this scene is such a big deal. Why is anybody frustrated that Jesus attends this banquet? In short, what we have going on here is Jesus attending a big food party thrown for him with a bunch of tax collectors and more of their kind. And who gets salty at this? The Pharisees. The teachers of the religious law, these these spiritual elites, the group that's designated to guard the holiness of the people. They get so upset. Why do they get so peeved at this? The table. They're so frustrated because of the table. In early Jewish tradition, they had this phrase, every table is an altar. Meaning, sharing a meal together is a holy moment. This is why we had the food truck out here last week. It's not that just because we were using bait to get people to show up to church. <laughs> Our staff, we decided as staff, we, we want to enjoy a meal together as a church family. Why? Because eating together is holy. See, I regularly encounter individuals who think to do the God stuff, to do the holy stuff, the really spiritual stuff, you have to go somewhere. You have to go to a temple or a mosque or a church. You need to go somewhere where a religious authority helps you think about these big grand God ideas. But in early Jewish tradition, every table is an altar. You see, God, he gave, he gave the earth this miraculous power to provide food for us. I think we, we, over, we overlook that sometimes, right? I mean, you think about this. You can go into a backyard if you're rich in L.A., right? <laughs> you, go, you go to a backyard. You plant a garden. You put seeds in there. You take care of it. Eventually, this food comes out that nourishes your bodies. And we're like, Yeah. What about virtual reality, right? <laughs> no, like a carrot. Think about that for a second. This is miraculous. So we gather around a table, around a meal that came from the earth. And it's holy because we have this direct connection to God as our provider through this table, through this food. The table was an ordinary, everyday reminder to pause, to reflect on the fact that this is a glorious gift. The very elements that are in front of us are providing us with life, with nourishment. They're sitting right on the table. Side tangent, the the problem of hunger in our world, it's a a problem. Hundreds of millions of souls go to bed every night hungry. But the problem is not the provision of the earth. 
the general agreement is the earth has no trouble providing for everybody. The problem is, pro- is production. It's not production, sorry, it's distribution. The earth is fine. <laughs> the earth can do enough of what it needs to do. The problem is distribution. It's corrupt, oppressive governments and bureaucracies. It's broken distribution systems. The problem isn't the earth, it's the human heart. It's what this is. We have the resources to feed everybody on the planet. The challenge is teaching people how to share. In the end, we're all just kids. We're just large children. And the table expresses the inherent value of every soul. So yes, it's a table. It's a, it's a hunk of wood or plastic or metal that you, that you gather to eat a, a meal around, but really it's a holy moment. It's when you're, when you're most directly connected with God's life-giving power that he's given the earth, which means it's more than a table. It's an altar. In my experience, there, there are many different ways to understand spirituality, but for a lot of people, the way that was given them, the, the way that was handed them, the method that, they were, that, they were, that was placed in their hands was essentially this worldview that says some divine being somewhere is going to be upset with you if you don't do certain things and you don't stop doing other certain things which means the fundamental orientation of their life toward the world, toward God, toward spirituality and religion is, what are the rules? What's on the list? Just tell me what I have to do to, to get in with this God. And I found this to be particularly true even in Christian circles, in the Jesus tradition. Jesus became man. He's God, and he died for us. He resurrected from the dead. So you don't have to do anything to be saved. But then here are all the things that you have to do to be saved. So for many, if we honestly look in the mirror, if we peel back all the layers at the foundation, what you find is do more. you got to do more. Because that, that big deity in the sky, he's going to be less pissed at you if you play by the rules. Earning blessing, earning favor, earning salvation, avoiding pain and grief and hell. At the base, I regularly find here are the rules you got to play by. Normally things like go to church often, read your Bible every day, pray more, convert someone this year if you haven't. And then don't do all the things on this list. And then God will be happy with you. Being a pastor for 10 years now, it's easy to pick out these kinds of themes in conversation with people. Specific, recurring language. Just tell me what I got to do so the great being in the sky won't be angry with me this week. What I want to submit today is the table declares there's more than that. There's more to life than that. That when we gather over the table to share life, to share pain, to share joy, what we're doing is we're connecting with the depths of our lives. And the reason this is important is because for many people, we're moving so fast that we just skim across the surface of our lives and we miss the divine presence in all of it. School, work, relationships, hobbies, traffic, cold brew, Netflix. Go, 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 go. It's a meal. It's just a meal. It's a conversation. It's just a conversation. Everything is, it appears to be cut off from its roots, cut off from the eternity, cut off from the depth that exists in all of it. But the reality is every breath, every conversation, every task, it's all laced with the divine. The art The challenge is to see eternity in all of it, to see the divine presence that's threading your life together. 
And what you're actually doing here is you're learning to see that which is already present. You've just been moving too fast to notice it. The sacred in everything, the holy in everything, the depth in everything, the Christ in everything. This is why the table is so profound. This is why when we read scripture and we we see them gather around a meal, when Jesus feeds 5,000 people, he's calling them to the table. This is why eating was so profound in Jewish tradition, and it's why the religious leaders get so ticked at Jesus. He's sharing life with these sinners. He's intimate with them. He's soul-talking with these ungodly ones. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's the point. I'd be doing it with you too, but you guys don't think you need it. Jesus eats at Levi's house, and in doing so, he's megaphoning honor. He's pulling out the bullhorn. Honor to a dishonorable man. Honor to his dishonorable company. He's roaring to the town. We're hanging. We're eating together. I want to be friends with them. I'm in love, I'm in love, I don't care who knows it. Elf, right? Throw the hat off. Jesus doesn't care. I'm going to love these people. I'm going to honor these people. Gosh, the nerve of Jesus. He walks into town. He publicly honors. He unashamedly connects with some of the least deserving people in town. And he does it over and over and over again. It's one of the things I love so much about Jesus. He doesn't, check this out, he doesn't withhold speaking honor to someone even if he disagrees with their behavior. Christians have a hard time with this. Classically, the church feels the need to change a person's behavior before we honor them, especially publicly honoring them. You want to know a little something about God, though? Scripture says he desires mercy over justice. Scripture says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Not his extreme standards, not fear of hell. It's his kindness. It's his tender compassion that convinces us to change. And this is why communion is so important in the Jewish tradition. It's the table. Jesus invites his disciples to the table. He says, come just as you are. Encounter my love for you. I want to share intimate friendship with you despite all your faults. In fact, if you come close enough, I'm going to take those faults and I'm going to redeem them into wounds that beautify things. The table. It's about deep fellowship. It's about seeing people. It's about honoring the soul of another. And Jesus, he's the exemplar. He eats with sinners. And here's the thing. I, I mean, as you read through it, it looks like he's not trying to prove something. Like he's not attempting to make some public spectacle. He's simply so committed to honoring souls, he doesn't care if he gets rejected because of it. He doesn't care if, if, if he gets publicly ridiculed for it. Jesus saw people. He saw people. And he saw them because he was looking for them. He looked individuals in the face and he called out their divine identity. He acknowledged that they were made in the image of God, so he honored them. As you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus was, he was skilled at this. He was exceptional at finding the rejects, the ones without a voice, the ones without rights, 
He had this eye, like he was looking for the excluded, the despised, the throwouts, the ragamuffins, and he was committed. He had this deep resolve to honor them despite who was watching, despite the cost. And here's the thing. I think his capacity to honor people is what made him relevant to them. His deep commitment to honoring souls is what made them feel like he was relevant to them. Jesus is relevant because he cares. He sees me. He honors me. You know, when it comes to cultural relevance, I think the American church kind of sucks. Here's why. The American church tend to, tends to sit on one, on one of two extreme sides of a spectrum. On one side, they believe that we have to stand in stark contrast to culture. Don't listen to popular music. Don't watch the movies. Don't wear the clothes. Don't use the vocabulary. We need to stand out like light. But they stand out so much that culture wants nothing to do with them. In fact, their standing out seems to appear more like condemnation than anything. Right? And on the other side, we find representatives with no conviction at all. They're, they're, they're just like simply mimicking, mimicking or cloning what they see culture doing. They, they assimilate, but then they put a, a twist of Jesus in there, right? And it comes off cheesy. It comes off lacking creativity and originality. And in most places, our culture doesn't respect that either. They're like, have a spine, guys, right? Own, own who you are. If you're going to be the church, at least do it. Author something. So what we rarely see, what we rarely experience is the American church trend-setting culture. The world is not saying, where's entertainment going? <laughs> Who has the foremost voice in fashion? Where's the, reconcilia- the racial reconciliation movement headed? Who's taking best care of our planet? What's the next big tech advance? They're not saying, let's look to the church, right? We seldom see champions leading the cultural charge representing the church. Here's the thing, though. Our our culture loves following trendsetters. Our culture loves jumping into the wake of somebody else doing it awesome. But the average American is not taking cues from the church for anything, regarding anything. Honor, though. Like Jesus... I believe honor is an area which, in which the church can step up. And you know, honor can be as simple as like walking by somebody and saying hi to them. I walk my dog all the time, right? I walk Goonie all the time. And I have holy moments walking Goonie. And every single day I pass people. We're, we're kind of like by Wilshire and Bundy over here. But it's on Texas. So it's a little bit of like more of a neighborhood feel. I pass people every single day walking Goonie. And most people put their head down and turn to the side. They won't even look me in the eyes. And as often as I can, I try to get eye contact and like, hey, hey, good morning, right? <laughs> like if somebody like really doesn't want to say hi, I'm not going to, right? But like the other day I walked by this guy and I was like, I was like, hey, good morning. He's like, and he looked like, whoa, somebody's talking to me, right? I was like, good morning. He's like, good morning. I was like, my name's Josh. He's like, I'm Anatoly. And he shook my hand. He looks so stoked to like that I saw him, right? That it's, honor can be as simple as seeing someone and just saying, hi, my name's Josh. At the grocery store, right? To shake another's hand and introduce yourself, to see them as a, as a human soul, to honor another as one who bears the image of God, to honor a value, honor them and value them as a soul. What if most Christians you knew could be described as individuals who honor people? Wherever they went, they brought life to the people, to the culture that surrounded them. Despite the behavior of those people, despite the political affiliation or the denominational bent, 
They brought honor and they, they enriched the lives of those with whom they come into contact. Do you think it would leave an impact? And I'm not even talking about like the way people view the church. I'm just talking about like would it impact the actual environment? I think it would. In our unrelentingly dishonoring culture, people are yearning for someone else to pave a path for, for honor. They want someone else to do it. Everybody loves being honored. People don't want to be the first one to step in to do the honoring, right? They're, they're, we're waiting. The culture's waiting for, for people to jump in and say, we'll, we'll, set the, we'll set the tone. We'll create the wake that you can jump into. And I think where that deficit exists, where that cavity sits, is precisely where Jesus has called us, the church, to dig our heels in. I want to make two like, quick notes regarding honor. First, may we not mix up honor and respect. Respect is earned, and it should be earned. Honor is given. And I think many of us actually need to ask forgiveness from others because while not respecting them, we did, we've advanced, we've progressed into dishonoring them. You don't have to, to respect someone to honor them. You can honor their position. You can honor their pain. You can honor simply that they are beloved children of God as well, made in his image as well, even if you don't respect them. So don't confuse respect and honor. And secondly, you don't have to agree with someone to honor them. You don't have to agree with their decision-making or their values or their leadership or vo- their vocabulary. Gosh, we can be so self, I'm putting myself in here, we can be so self-absorbed. We can be so ignorant to think that just because someone has landed on a different conclusion than us on a specific issue, that they no longer deserve to be honored as one who bears the image of God. Jesus, help us on this one. We were built with the same power Jesus has. You're built with the, the, the power to honor. The question is whether or not you want to use it. Because in cultures of dishonor, things die. And in cultures of honor, things flourish. Life, life flourishes. And Christians are called to be life bringers. If you're a life bringer, if you're an honor, you will extend life wherever you go. You will enrich that, that community, that culture, that environment. You will beautify life wherever you, your feet take you. Thinking back to Aria, her saying cute, or say, saying hi is cute, right? When she's like, hi, my name is Aria, that's, that's cute. It's really cute. But why is it more cute than it, than it is right? Why is it just not the right thing to do? I fear the day, actually, that Aria eventually adopts our social norms. So I pray in opposition to that that she will conform, conform not to the world around her, but to the Christ that lives inside of her. I pray that she never loses her courage and that we can follow her example and gain this fearless audacity like hers to bring life where we work, where we create, where we grocery shop, where we do yoga, where we drink coffee, to live, to honor in such a way that the world watches what we do and they want to adopt our ways. To live, to love, and honor. It's the table. The table is all about honor. To see the other, to honor the soul across from you. Now on the surface, it probably seems like my challenge for you today is to simply honor people. And it's like yes and no. My challenge for you today is to not, limiting, to not limit honor to the table. To not limit honor to a specific location 
to a specific circumstance. If we reserve honor for the people who come to our table, we're going to miss a lot of people. With a, with a come and get it mentality, I'll honor anybody that comes in the door. I'll honor anybody that comes to me. We're going to not honor a lot of souls. New, to- New Testament culture screams that table is about honor. But Jesus knows that individuals always deserve honor. Every individual deserves honor always, not just when they're eating. So if you read the stories of Jesus carefully, what you see him do is not limit honoring souls to a table. He takes the table wherever he goes. The concept of the table, I'm not going to limit to when I'm eating food with someone. I'm going to take the table with me. I'm going to honor you here now as if there were a table in front of us. For me, coffee is a reminder to see the soul in front of me, to honor the soul in front of me. Who's gotten coffee with me before? It's a pretty good percentage of our church. I like that. That makes me happy. (laughs) That's not just about my love for coffee. Largely what it is is my effort to see you. It's my effort to be present to you, to honor you as one loved of God. The table, the coffee cup is about honor. But if I limit honoring people to sharing coffee with them over a coffee table, in a coffee shop, there's going to be a lot of people that go unseen and a lot of people that go unhonored. You know what the remedy is? To go honor. (laughs) To go honor. To go coffee is going to transform the world. I hope to rewire your brain today that every time you see a coffee cup or a coffee shop or a coffee table, that every time you even smell coffee, you would be reminded to honor the soul in front of you. But hear this. Don't limit honor to specific locations and specific people and specific situations like Jesus. Take it everywhere you go. Take it to go everywhere you go. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. We're headed into a time of response worship through song. And here's what I'd like to invite you to during this time. During this next song, I want to invite you to walk up here and come get a cup. And uh, Amanda actually... She, she did a little watercolor and then wrote honor in all of, on all of these. I want to ask you to come up, grab a cup, go back, sit back to your seat, and ask God who this cup might, re- might represent for you. What person in your life, what people in your life might Jesus be asking you to honor? Even if you disagree with them, even if you have different values, even if you don't like them. <laughs> Who in your life might Jesus be asking you to honor? And then I want to I want to inspire you to look for souls. Again, not to wait for people to come to you, but to look for souls in need of honor. The neglected child, the least popular colleague, the parent who hurt you, the angry boss, that silent stranger on the bus, the humble barista. I want to inspire you to look for people in need of a good cup of honor. And when you find them, to see them, to actually see them.
and then honor them as one who bears the image of God. So God, we come to your table and we thank you that we are accepted by you, that we are loved and known and honored by you first. And now we pick up that cross, we pick up that way and we say we wanna do this like you. So we pray for courage. God, give us courage right now. Give us discernment to be able to know who it is in our life that is in need of honor. I pray that you change the wiring of our minds, change the way we see the world to be on, on the lookout for people who need honor, God. God, we give you space. Transform our hearts during this time, we pray. We come to you in faith and in your love, God.